there is a musician named David Byrne who is most well known for being the, the uh, front man of a band called Talking Heads. But uh, since those days, he has continued on with a solo career, and ever since uh, his first endeavors in music, he's been a person who's been asking big questions, he's been filled with curiosity, and he's been willing to really push boundaries. Incidentally, if you've ever seen him perform, he's one of the most awkward human beings ever to pick up a Fender Stratocaster. And one of the last things that my family and I did just before the world changed when coronavirus arrived everywhere was we actually got to see a concert that David Byrne was doing in New York. It was a show that sort of was in some ways theater and in some ways was a musical performance, brought it all together. And the, the concert began, the, the show began with him on the stage and he's holding what looks like a human brain. Makes you think of Hamlet, but instead of a skull, instead of contemplating mortality, he's contemplating the potential of human thought. And he holds this model of a brain and he sings about the different parts of the brain and what they do. And then he begins discussing the way that the parts of the brain work by connecting to each other. And he points out that the human brain, when you are a baby, has the potential to make all sorts of connections. It's built for connecting. But then as you grow older, as you become an adult, you only retain those connections that you use. And so in some senses, this is the least being greater than the older. And so when we practice making those connections, we become more childlike. We regain something that we lost when we were very, very young. And he goes on and expands, it's not only the connections that a brain can make, but the connections among people. And that is illustrated by the concert when you see the connection between him and the other musicians as if they're thinking with one mind. And throughout the show, he's talking to the audience, and there's a connection there too. It's almost an ongoing dialogue that happens from beginning to the end. And he even gets to the point where you, sitting in your seat, start to realize the connection that you have to every other human being in that theater. Something that is very difficult to translate unless you can be in a space with so many other people. And this is one of those New York theaters with the many balconies, so you know there are people above you and below you and all around. And now this was back in February, and we've had a hard 2020. But even back then, his show was a remarkable show because it left you feeling truly uplifted in this time. He also points out, and remember, he's an awkward individual, and he... He points out that uh, for him personally, it can be hard to talk to people. And yet, observing people is one of the joys of life. He says, human beings love to look at other human beings. We love to watch each other. We love to behold the faces of other people. If you go to the art museums and the other museums in this city, when they eventually fully open up, you'll see 
They're filled with images of human beings. We love to look at each other. People watching is a wonderful thing to do in New York City or in Washington, D.C. If we open our eyes. It's interesting to connect and, and wonder about what the Bible teaches about our image and, and who we are as people when the Bible says that we have been created in God's image. Specifically, it says in Genesis that we are created male and female in our diversity in God's image. And so what could that mean? Perhaps it's that common thread that we share in humanity that gets us to the image of God. Or perhaps it is the connections themselves between us and each other where God is to be seen. In these connections that we make human to human, we bring the kingdom of God to earth. And here we have this morning a parable that we just heard about the kingdom of God. Jesus offers a teaching that's a difficult teaching. Um, in the context of this, he is towards the final days of his life teaching in his earthly ministry. He has entered Jerusalem and his death on the cross is coming very soon. And you'll notice in the Gospel of Matthew, as he offers his parables, they get more extreme as he gets closer to the end. And this is certainly an example of that. It goes to extremes if you were listening to these words. But it's important that we don't let the extremes cause us not to hear what the parable is really there to teach us. And so here's the scenario. It's about a king who is throwing a wedding banquet for his son. Now, a wedding banquet during those days would have been a multi-day affair. It's not just going on a Saturday afternoon into the evening. It's like you're camping out practically and you're celebrating with everybody who's there. And the invitation that went out, there's something to be explained in that too. It's not like the invitation is just suddenly sent and these people blow off the people who are inviting them on behalf of the king. A wedding banquet would have had the invitation sent out much further ahead of time. And people would have known that it was coming and that last invitation is the one that we hear about. It's like if you go to somebody's home and everybody's gathered in the living room and then the hosts finally have everything prepared and they've set it all out on the table and they walk out and they say, the food is ready, it's on the table waiting for you, come on in and we will join and eat. Well, that was the moment. Everything had been prepared, the wedding feast was set and that final notice was being given to the people and everyone blew off the servants of the king and worse. And it goes downhill from there, in fact. And then we have the final part where they go, the king has this response of grace and he says, go out and invite everybody in the town. Those originally invited chose not to come. They were not worthy. Invite everybody else. And the others all come and then there's one poor soul who's in the wedding banquet and he's not wearing the wedding robes. And the king recognized that and he gets thrown out into the outer darkness. I think it's important to say that what happens is chosen by the people. Those who blow off the invitation, they're not receiving the gift of grace. When you're given a gift, you give a gift to the giver by receiving it. 
And they withheld that from the giver. And the person who came and wasn't dressed in the wedding attire, he came, but he wasn't really there. He wasn't really ready. And so we ask, what would that mean to be ready, to receive the gift, to step into it, and to put on the clothing? Paul says in another place that we are to put on Christ, to be clothed in Christ. He even says we have been baptized into Christ, and so we are like children being clothed in Christ, which means being clothed in compassion, in empathy, in the ability to connect, that openness which brings the kingdom. And to think about Christ being born as a human, being incarnate in the flesh like us, he elevates humanity by doing so. That gaze that I spoke about where we gaze upon each other and open our eyes to one another, Christ was God with a human face gazing upon other human faces, with a human face that could be beheld by other humans, elevating it all. And when we lift our eyes to see his gaze, we're lifting our eyes heavenward. We've been invited to this banquet. It matters that we say yes to the invitation. It matters that we receive the gift of grace and give a gift to the giver. And it also matters that we put on the clothing, that we clothe ourselves in Christ, in, in his compassion, in his ability to be open to connection. Amen.